Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Uh, for our program, we um, we have a pretty packed program. Um, we're going to be featuring a interview with Hope um, Malabutu, um, who is also a FreeCR presenter, um, talk, um, talking about her experiences as a frontline healthcare worker. Then we will have an interview with Federica Fontes, and um, who. Who's part of um, Venezuela Analysis and editor of Green Left um, about you know about Venezuela's success story um, when it comes to COVID nineteen. Then the next um, program is will part of the program will be hearing a recording from a public forum um, that was COVID nineteen response, uh, justice and healthcare, not racism, that was organised by Social Science over the last weekend. And I guess before um, we go into a, um, that part of the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay respect to Elders past and present, um, and that this always was, um, always will be, Aboriginal land. And that it is important um, to, be, to continuously support uh, Indigenous sovereignty and struggle, and that we um, must, you know... Um, Acknowledge the colonial kind of injustice that Australia was founded on. Um, so, yeah, I'll take you into the rest of the program. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Okay, you're listening to Green Left. Um, for this episode of Green Left, we're going to be having a bit of a discussion about um, hearing from a frontline worker on uh, the public health kind of response to COVID-19, especially in the context of what's happening in Victoria, um, which is going through uh, a massive um, outbreak and surge in COVID-19 cases, um, and there's even a potential possibility that um, while we're currently in stage three lockdown, um, that a more hard lockdown is still to come. Um, so, yeah, I'll pa- um, 
for the presenters we have today, you have myself, Jacob Antwafa, and we have Chloe De Silva. Um, I'm going to pass it on to Chloe um, to introduce our guest um, that we have um, for our special program today. Hi, thank you, Jacob. And we are happy to have Hope Matumba with us on the show today. Hope is a frontline nurse and a writer, and you'll, you've, you'll often hear Hope on the 3CR radio show, Women on the Line. Uh, Hope has been involved in the COVID-19 testing and has been working in the quarantine hotels. And we are going to be interviewing her about what it has been like working during a pandemic and uh, about the current public health approach. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us this morning, Hope. Thank you. Yeah, I guess to start off, Hope, um, what can you um, maybe what can you tell us personally about your experience as being a frontline health worker and the midst of this kind of COVID nineteen pandemic, in, um, especially in the context of what's happening in Victoria? Um, well, thank you both for 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 having me. I, well, you know, I'm so I, I have a background in in public health, and for a very long time, I worked in public health promotion after having done my master's in public health. Um, But about uh, almost three years ago now, I decided to go back to study uh, to do nursing. Um, And I'm in my third year of nursing at the moment. And so my, you know, if you call it frontline work is in two parts. As a nursing student, I have to do about, you know, 800 plus hours unpaid. Um, through my degree. So some of the frontline work I've been doing has been in public hospital, um, you know, as a third year nursing student. Um, And then to kind of make money, you know, as you do, and I'm a mature age student who doesn't get any government support, I have had to work casually as a carer. Um, We call it a PCA, personal care attendant. Um, And I work in different places. Um, I get sent out to different places by my agency. Um, And as part of that work, I've worked in quarantine hotels, either, you know, downstairs in sort of like the medical office where we support people who have come in on flights and they need to um, isolate. Or I've worked um, on swabbing shifts, swabbing the people in there. And we usually swab on day three and day 11 of their 14-day, you know, isolation. And uh, I've also worked on various pop-up testing sites, uh, which is where people from, from you know, the wider public, I've uh, mostly worked in the hotspot suburbs, um, and drive through and they get tested. Um, yeah, and so, I, I mean, I guess those have been my experiences. This is just stuff that I've, I've had to do um, to, to survive. It's, it's interesting. Okay. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Hope, for, um, yeah, just giving us a little bit of a rundown of uh, what your involvement has been so far. Um, what, what can, what can you tell us about your experiences? Um, what can your experiences, t- uh, tell us about the Victorian government's response to COVID-19? Yeah. Well, I mean, at first, um, I really thought that our response in Victoria specifically was, was very good um, and that the messaging and the response was much better than, than Scott Morrison's on a, on a national level. Um, but ever since then, I've been disappointed um, because it seems like we've had a lot of time to learn from other places, but we just haven't done so. Um, 
and and it really disappoints me as a public health person who works now in nursing to see that there's lots of lessons that we've forgotten from public health responses either to HIV and AIDS or other stuff. And I just think that the response by the Victorian government has been bureaucratic and has been mismanaged at a key point and with key professionals. So, you know, my my thinking and my understanding, you know, as a black woman and as a as a professional who's working as a PCA, but I think that <laughs> Overall, I'm overqualified for the position that I'm doing. So, you know, but people don't see me. It's not like you walk around with your resume printed on your on your forehead. So I think that I'm in a unique position um, to see a lot of interesting things. I think that from my perspective, one of the biggest failings has been in getting a clear, coordinated um, processes and procedures that apply to everyone. So the biggest failing has been in the in the management of the quarantine hotels because quarantine hotels are different everywhere you go. And now with the new WHO advice, that's actually not really new. It's just that it's being acknowledged rather than it's new, uh, that COVID spreads more quickly um, in enclosed spaces where people are much closer together. I think that's one thing that they didn't really take into consideration and there needed to be more monitoring and surveillance of people who are going in and out of those doors, frontline workers like myself, because you get people who are moving around in different places. Me, I have to. Some other places decide to, decided to pay student nurses, student nurses who are also on the front lines in aged care and other places. So instead of limiting our, our movement and checking in more on us to support us, they just kind of let us go wild, nilly-willy. Um, and I think that was a big mistake. And I think a big mistake in us not being supported and us just being trusted to do the right thing. So an example of that is, you know, I got a call one time because someone had tested positive at the Stamford Plaza and they were like, stop what you're doing, go get tested and isolate until your test comes back negative. So at that time, I was working at a different quarantine hotel and I went up to the team leader and I was like, hey, can I please get tested? And they couldn't test me on site. So they told me to go to another place. Luckily, I knew where this place was. I had to go to like St. Vincent. So it was just going through half of the city. But trusting someone to go through half of the city, you know, I could have been infectious and asymptomatic. Um, You know, there wasn't any like, let me write you a map to support you on how that goes. And so I went, I did that, I isolated. But I know lots of other people who are frontline workers not security guards, but nurses who've done the wrong thing. So instead of trying to understand human behavior and trying to like account for it on every level, instead, like I feel like the government has just been blaming people and it's very classist as well. Because when I think about security guards and and their experience, you know, they're the last to know anything. Sometimes we've gone through shortages of PPE. And we dole it out based on based on a hierarchy. So a doctor and a nurse would get the better PPE than even before me or a security guard in some instances, depending on the task that they had to complete. And so I think as well, the language that's used against security guards is very demoralizing and demeaning. And I go through the same thing as someone who's a carer rather than a nurse, rather than a doctor, rather than higher up in the in the in the ranks and the chains. And so the way that everything is very set up is very bureaucratic. 
and you have to be someone rather than it being like a teamwork sort of effort. Like, you know, people on the internet have spoken about how COVID or the prevention of is, is a group work project. And that's exactly what it is. We're all part of a group. And as soon as we start pointing the fingers at other people, obviously there's a protection of a higher class that's going on here. And that's really, that's really wrong when we're all on the same playing field because this is an invisible virus that affects everyone. And the thing that made me more sad as well is that a lot of those people in those high rises that got locked down, you're recreating the same as a quarantine hotel. There's been lots of evidence that shows that people in enclosed spaces are at a higher risk of contracting this virus. So the support that's been given to people who've tested positive in the high rises, they just to go back to their family members, to go back to the small enclosed space and isolate without being told how, without there being a best practice, and that's really wrong. Like in other countries like Ireland, they were really specific on how they sent out packages in the mail on how to self-isolate. Like lots of little explainers would have been really helpful for everyone in the population because now we've got this hierarchy which isn't really good. Another place where I've seen this hierarchy at work is in um, the pop-up testing sites. So at the moment in pop-up testing, if you've got a letter from the DHSS, you are sort of fast-tracked, your result is sort of fast-tracked, right? But there was this one time where I was working and a woman came came through the drive through she was in tears, she looked pretty sick, to be honest, and she was crying because her husband had tested positive. And it's just her, her husband and their kids at home, and she's like, where am I supposed to go? How quickly is this result going to get back? Can you fast-track it? But she didn't have a letter from the DHSS, and it was like, oh, well, you just go back and she's like, should I send my kids somewhere? What if they're positive? And they just didn't know what to do with themselves, you know? So some of that information that's also being given out to the general public who want to know how to do the right thing, but, you know, don't. And the thing is that lots of communities have been asking for help from when COVID started. So another big mistake that the government made was not listening to people. From the get-go, people who lived in big communal families that they couldn't necessarily avoid were saying, well, you have to know that Victorians live in different ways. Not all of us are maybe in a mansion or know how to access this or know how to access that. So I think the biggest failing has been understanding everyone in the community and getting ready for that and, and listening to them instead sending in police to do certain jobs and not others and it's just it's just a big mess and it's a big shambles i mean sorry i could go on and and another area where i think there's a key lacking is one of the areas where i think i don't really believe in the carceral system or policing system being able to fix problems but when we talk about enforcing of rules one of the places where there's been a lack of enforcement is people who need to self isolate because they've come into contact with someone positive or people who are positive themselves and need to be doing the right thing and staying at home. So I can tell you now that I've worked in a place where a nurse got a positive result and rocked up to work positive. It's not being reported in the media. It's not being talked about. I know that there's maybe a case that's going to go through, that's going through that's an inquiry that's looking into the quarantine hotels. And I can tell you that this was in a quarantine hotel. People want to be talking about security guards having sex, but I've worked in a place that wasn't cleaned properly that had its second COVID outbreak because of a nurse who wasn't doing the right thing. Now, I don't want us to start bashing nurses or whatever, but I want us to highlight the fact that there's lots of people who think that they can get away with things in society because they are part of a certain class. Like sometimes we like to martyr nurses. 
you're doing this job because it's a job to do. I want to see it done the right way. If I'm not doing it the right way, replace me. I don't care. But there's some people who are getting really good money to go into certain jobs and they keep working there. They only cottoned on to this nurse doing the wrong thing two days later because the DHSS has like a, a list of all the people who've turned up positive. There weren't any cops at her place. Every day, I want there to be a cop checking in on someone who's either positive and supposed to be isolating or someone who's known someone who's been positive and is supposed to be doing that 14-day isolation. Because I also know a story of someone who's worked in child protection. There was an outbreak there. You're not hearing about that. Someone who had was a close contact of someone who was positive this person was just out and about driving, doing the wrong thing, right? And there was no one there checking on them. Sometimes police have gone in to some people who've been cleared by the DHSS saying, oh, you're negative, you can go out. And then the police rock up to their house two days later. Hey, you're supposed to be at home, but I've got a letter from you guys. Oh, sorry, our mistake. So nothing in this system works. And where I would like it to be working the most is on that bottom end where there's people who've actually been close to infectious people. How do we support them to either isolate or make sure that they're isolating. Not poor old people, not, not black and brown people who are also trying to like advocate for their human rights and their freedoms, who are also working on the front lines. We're doing plus, 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 plus. Um, and I just think the biggest failing has been in this finger pointing, rather at looking things in a holistic way and protecting staff who are maybe working on the front lines, but working at many different sites. I think that's also a big problem. Yeah, that... Oh. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry, Chloe. Uh, interrupt. Oh, do you want to finish what you were saying? Oh, me or Hope? Oh, you. Um, oh, you uh, just... No, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say a few things. There's, there's clearly there clearly needs to be. Um, Hope raised some really good points. There clearly needs to be a partnership, uh, a strong partnership between governments and society, and you know, often involving community leaders and residents, and including them in the response to fight. Um, the virus instead of treating people, uh, certain people like criminals, and it's often migrant communities. I just wanted to say that in response. Well, um, Hope, um, you sort of raised, um, I wanted to sort of ask you a question about the whole racial kind of scapegoating, but maybe we'll put that a bit aside um, and maybe Chloe can sort of ask that question because basically some of the stuff you mentioned before actually raised quite an interesting point with how the lockdowns have been implemented. In a sense, a lot of the lockdowns and the sort of punitive measures have been, in a sense, been mostly centred around policing the individual activity of of people, but not necessarily the economic activity of the state. And so, you know, the only reason I feel that, you know, workers are being allowed um, to work um while testing positive for COVID-19 comes from a context where it's clear that the state is prioritising economic activity um, at, at the expense of public health. And you only have to look at this recent example um, of, uh, I think, a casino in Sydney was fined only, the owners of that business was, was only, were only fined like $5,000, um, you know, for breaking social distancing or not implementing proper social distancing measures in the casino. Meanwhile, um, a group of people in Dangnong who organised a party, I mean, it's stupid behaviour that I don't support at all. They organised a party and a KFC party or something, and they got fined over $60,000. So I want to hear a bit of your comments on 
on that on on some of those sort of points I've I've kind of raised. Mm. And with the KFC thing, I was wondering if was it KFC that dogged them in, or was it the police who kind of like used some sort of surveillance? I mean, because the other thing is like the police have so many things to surveil people. So I also know that on Wednesday night. Be, you know, before the lockdown was supposed to come in, there was a nurse who was talking and she lives in a northeastern suburb, sorry, northwestern suburb, northwestern suburb. And she was talking about how she's noticed drones um, and, and all sorts of like helicopters. And, 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 you know, we know that the police got themselves like a fancy new helicopter as well, but other suburbs didn't have this. So I know that in Yarraville, which is like right to uh, West Woodbury, in West Footscray, which was a lockdown suburb, but Yarraville is like just across the road from me, and Footscray is over there. So I was also wondering about some of them, those economic decisions as well, and how they found the people who had this KFC party, when there's also other key ways of finding people who are doing the wrong thing, but they're just not putting their back into it as much as they do with, with, with people who can't afford those fines. So even now with the sex workers, who, who were fined and, and that sort of thing. So it really does draw a light to how they see enforcement and really the rich getting keep getting richer and, and not find that much, whereas the poor people um you know find you know find through the nose. And I think that for a lot of people who were initially in the lockdown suburbs, which was very wrong some people don't know that one side of the street is one suburb and another side of the street is another suburb. And if you don't really have a good excuse for good excuse, I'm putting this in inverted commas, for being somewhere and not being in somewhere else. And I also know the receptionist who works out in the western suburbs and lots of people were cancelling key health appointments because they were so afraid of bumping into the police. So the other thing is like the health impact of this, right? So we know that racism is a determinant of health. Racism has been caused to show poorer health outcomes. So like the stress levels, when you are afraid of bumping into police, the stress levels that over-policing has done to to physically, to black and brown bodies, there's been science on this, but people don't talk about it a lot. So imagine people cancelling key health appointments and, and doing all of the stuff because they're in a lockdown suburb and they don't know if they're going to be doing the right thing or the wrong thing, and they just will pretty much just cancel everything and stay at home. Is that how we want people to be living? Like, I also want to make my job easier as a nurse in the future. If, if we can say to someone, you're doing the wrong thing, just go back home and you can avoid an $1,100 fine, rather than finding someone who doesn't have $1,100 who's going to go borrow it from the wrong place, that's leading them into a cycle of poverty or or. or, or or, or any other kind of addiction and that sort of thing, then I would rather that person was sent back home without a fine um, than other people. We know that other people who get into trouble and who can afford it, like, you know, money is just a safety net for you to keep getting out of the same trouble, if that makes sense. Like, if you can afford to go back into rehab five times rather than a person who's in, living in intergenerational poverty and addiction taking hold, that those are also two different things, if, if that makes sense. So we know that in Australia, you know, people who are, you know, the, the highest levels of addiction are actually to, to prescription, prescription drugs. And it's actually people who are higher up who end up sort of overdosing at home and that sort of thing. So when it comes to class 
and over-policing. We're definitely over-policing and finding the wrong people, people who produce more with like a conversational sort of thing rather than, than a fine. Sorry, I don't know if that answers the question, but it's a lot of things that I think about. No, that's that's great, uh, Hope. Thank you. Um, well, I was also thinking back to the the public forum on Saturday. Uh, you you spoke about you know the the power of community in crisis, and you were also talking about you know. Um, sorry, I had like some notes to ask you. Maybe you can edit this part out. <laughs> you were you were spoke you spoke about you know trust and about the undermining of trust during a pandemic response. And, you know, we've, we've seen the media has been quick to blame individuals, um, you know, and, and even going as far as resorting to racial scapegoating of migrants as the outbreak of COVID-19 continues. And, you know, a lot of these migrant um, communities, a lot of migrant workers, uh, you know, they're quite vulnerable. They, they don't have access to any government support. They're not part of job keeper or job seeker. Uh, so what are, what is some of your thoughts uh, around, around this? Mm. Well, I mean, the other thing I want to say is that there's good migrants and there's bad migrants, according to Australia, you know. So the other thing, you know, the other interesting thing is that the nursing profession, there's lots of, of, of European migrants that do this job. So lots of like Irish and, and British people with their fun accents that people find fun. But then you have your black and brown migrants where our our accents and our sort of language needs are different to like your cute European migrants. But it's also the way in which we think about and the way we support different migrants and whether they're worthy in our eyes or not worthy in our eyes. So like, you know, I know that the difference between me and my mum, who came to this country as a nurse um, over 20 years ago, you know, she speaks with a big accent and people don't like hearing her speak. And they always turn to me and like, what what is she saying? But she's my go-to person for any nursing knowledge because she's been a nurse for like, you know, all of her life. Um, but people would be much quicker to like listen to me or think that I'm smart or I'm this or I'm that. So there's also that double conundrum of what kind of migrant category you fall into and whether people find you more or less acceptable than other people. And also me being like a black woman, you know, I go through different experiences than maybe, you know, people who are more visibly black from the South Sudanese community or people who've come more from like a refugee background and have had to struggle a lot harder than I have to quote unquote assimilate into the society or whatever. So I also want to draw that attention to like the migrant experience because sometimes I've had Irish nurses say to me, well, I don't get any government support and I'm here and I've done my thing. And it's like, well, you're white and everyone thinks you're cute and everyone's trying to copy your accent, but I'm sorry, it's a different thing. And of course, we also know that there's people, you know, there's lots of migrants that I've worked with, black and brown migrants, that were doctors or nurses or had actual careers in their country of birth. But because of the way Australia recognizes or doesn't recognize, you know, like you could have graduated nursing in Ireland or the UK and you can come straight here and be a nurse. But if you graduate as, a, as like a doctor or a dentist, like I once worked with, with a nurse who was actually a dentist in the Philippines and we were talking a lot because every, everyone wanted him to work in like the ENT, ear, nose and throat because he had a better understanding of that because essentially he's a dentist, he's a doctor, but his qualifications never got seen here and he had to go through such a long pathway that he's like, 
effort, I'll just go and become a nurse. But now there's all these extra skills that everybody wants to use against him. And he's like, I wanted to switch out of that because everyone would give me all of the difficult cases. And it's like, well, you go and learn, you know. So everyone also wants to benefit from black and brown migrants, but wants us to kind of be at a lower level, just wants you to be a carer or just wants you to be this or that. Now I'm in a more fortunate position because unlike other people, I made the choice to go into nursing, even though I have a master's degree. Other people didn't make that choice. They had to make that choice because either government made things really tough, like, oh, you've got to work three years in the country, or you've got to do this, or you've got to do that. So they just gave up on their dream, a dream that they pursued and that they are actually very intelligent in, and they just had to give up. Now, sometimes I worked actually with a very lovely doctor, um, South Asian background, and she was born and raised in Australia, but because she looks South Asian or, or, you know, she comes from a Tamil background, actually, I do know. The nurse was saying to her, oh, I wanted to be a doctor, but it was too full of, uh, it was too full of Asian students, so I gave up on that dream, said to her face. And this other woman was a doctor herself, but because she was so nice, the other nurse made a mistake. The white nurse made a mistake and thought that she was a nurse too, but she was a doctor. And not that you should be saying that to anyone, but she realized that. And this doctor sort of had to gently call her out during the shift. And I've had so many amazing conversations with people whom on face value have been judged to be lower or less than that you think that you can say anything to them, but they are the most intelligent people that I've ever met. And the way that in which professions or the nursing profession or the government talks to them is not a respectful way. You know, I saw that Guardian thing come out, the nurse who like worked at the high rises and everybody called them out. You know, everybody goes to the high rises. Oh, these are people who need to be saved. I'm going there to save them. I know lots of people in the high rises who are frontline workers, who are mental health students, who are social workers, who are other things that are living in those high rises. The talent is there. The people who are healthcare workers are there. We're just not prioritizing their voices. And this is what happens time and time again in Australia slash Victoria, so-called, is that there are people there who work in those places with the voices, but the voices we wish to prioritize are ones that make us feel better. You know, they're privileged white people who are supposedly on the left who are like, it was for their own good. We just want them to be whatever. And it's like, dude, the government did nothing. It's the young people who came from those housing commission flats that made, you know, translated documentation in however many different languages and turned it around in a 24-hour period. How quickly can the government do that? (laughs) Not very. You know, it's their own communities who did their own work, but we're not giving them that um, that kudos because we want to keep them on a lower level. You know, I've got friends who work in the Department of Health um, and Human Services, Somali friends. They were never called to work on those front lines. There's actually people in the DHSS who come from those communities, but they were never called on. And I wonder why. Well, I think... Um... That gets um, into sort of the, the next kind of point I want to sort of ask. I mean, yeah, cause you got to kind of critique sort of the government sort of handling of the, of the draconian sort of lockdown of public housing tenants and especially how people have kind of treated them and, and how it has gone along racial kind of lines. Um, but I guess I also want to go back to, I mean, some of your kind of experiences as well. Um, from your criticisms of the of the Daniel Andrews government and how they handled, and when you consider all these things are kind of together, um, what do you think 
are some of the alternative approaches to public health that um, should have been taken, um, especially in the um, especially you know alternative to what the government has done with the um, draconian lockdown of the public housing estates. Yeah, I, I think more of um, community approach finding out who the communities are and finding out how they can get various different sorts of community workers to to kind of, you know, step up. And one of my favorite examples is how they're using posties um, to check in on elderly people so, um, in Ireland. This is an island specifically because, you know, like the postal workers know you. And so their job could sort of be leveled up to be more like health and human services as well. Um, which made a lot of sense to me. But decentralizing things a bit and making it more clear that this is like a teamwork environment more so, um, because at the moment where it stands, when we do swabbing of people, right, like, for instance, the in, in, in pop-up testing, right, so, like, the pathology forms have to be signed by a doctor. Sometimes the doctor just sits around signing things, and when they are happy they've signed enough things, then they just go, like they don't help out. Whereas you found other doctors, like that South Asian woman who seemed like a nurse, but was actually a doctor, she helps out more. So she's like, hey, you guys, what do you need? As a carer, I can't physically swab people. So do like the swab in the throat and in the nose, and that's fine. So I can just do more paperwork. Whereas a doctor can do both of those things, right? So it's only a doctor that's a bit more gung-ho. Sometimes you've had doctors who are more of the male variety make a lot of mistakes on the forms and on the paperwork, and then you try to tell them off, but they're like, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm just trying to be helpful, instead of them just listening. And because we've brought in, like, a bunch of workers who are more used to working in a hierarchical sense rather than a team working sense, well, some people would argue that they work in a multidisciplinary team. But as a PCA, I'm lower than a nurse and I'm supposed to be taking orders from a nurse. And I know that in a quarantine hotel, I had I bumped heads with a nurse because she didn't understand that it was important to write down the reason of refusal for people who are refusing a COVID test. And she ordered me. I had to like make a complaint to um, my agency because she was like, no, you don't do that. I've worked many of these shifts and you're just wasting time. So she just wanted to get the job over and done with. And I was like to her, look, I have a master's in public health. I tried to say gently, I know what this data will be used for. And she just gave me the order because she knew that she was higher up than me. And this was in front of another nurse who never stood up for me. And I really think that that just boiled down to this nurse not liking me having an opinion. Like that's what it came down to. And I was like to her, look, we're up here I promise you that when we go downstairs and we tell the team leader, she's she's going to want to, like, no. Eventually, we finished our job and we went down to the team leader. Team leader was like, yeah, that is important, but just kind of let it go. So even I think that the way that the data is collected and, and the way that team leaders give their debriefings to people, sometimes team leaders sort of stand aside and sort of think, oh, you're a nurse or you're a doctor or you're like, you know, sometimes they mistake me for a nurse from, like, to them, I'm a PCA. But the DHSS team leaders, because they've been seconded from other areas, they also just sort of stand around being like, you guys know what you're doing, right? Right? Okay, go off and do it. So even the briefings, when I come to the start of a shift at a different place, they're not even the same. People aren't having a standardized practice and people aren't pulling other people up being like, 
I sold this thing. Can you please pass it over to tomorrow's people that this thing needs to be done? Like I would be quizzing people being like, who has worked here before? Who hasn't? You know, this is what we need to do. And going through everything ad nauseum to make sure that the, the practice is standardized at each and every stage. And so what you've done is, you know, you've chosen a profession of people who may understand things from a clinical perspective, but may not understand things from a public health perspective when that data is very important. So the reason for refusal is very important because we can know if we're going in there to fix things around conspiracy theories, or we can go in there to fix things around this or around that. Um, and we can know where to, you know, tackle behavior change because public health is about changing people's behaviors. Or whether you're a nurse, there's some nurses who've never even gotten the COVID test. I've gotten it, but some people will be like, I've never gotten it because I think it's gross. And it is a gross test, but why can some people choose not to get it done and other people can? And another thing I think is that it would be really good to have regular testing of frontline workers where that isn't the case. I was told to go offsite. I once worked at a quarantine hotel where there was a security guard who was staying there. Um, because there'd been this outbreak and he called down and he's like, hey, can I get a test? And the nurses were like, well, that's not like in our mandate. Like we're supposed to only be testing people. Like we're only looking after people who've come in from a flight, not people, you know, because the quarantine hotels are also open to people who can't quarantine at home. So this is another, uh, you know, um, example of something that happened to me. Now, what does this security guard have to do he has to then apply for a half day exemption where the DHSS will call him a taxi or whatever else to send him to a testing site to get tested and he's got to come back and do his quarantine where's the sense in that when he's now got to go and maybe make other people potentially have COVID like there's just no rhyme or reason to this and the people who need to be tested the most and checked in on the most are the people who we are martyring in this whole system thinking or you're the expert, you go off and you do your thing. Bottom line is, there are no experts. I don't care if you're the Queen of England, you'll be getting a swab up your nose and you'll be staying at home if I think that, that, that you've come into risk and you've come into contact. Another thing is like the double, the double thing with like, oh, some people were getting turned away from testing sites because they didn't have any symptoms, you know. I think part of it is this economic thing that you're talking about, Jacob, is that you know, we've only started wearing masks this week, but there's evidence like people in Austria, in Europe, Austria, a very tiny country, have been wearing masks for months now, for months. But where is also the rhyme and reason is that I think that they've tried to save money on PPE. And I think they've kind of gone, oh, yeah, maybe things are looking all right. And there's actually been the kind of complacency that Dan Andrews is talking about is something that's tilted up from the top and goes way down to the bottom, right? So I know that when the COVID numbers were starting to get, you know, looking a bit better, especially in Victoria, when it was New South Wales that was being laughed at, places that used to have hand hygiene and temperature checks were like, oh, it's all right now. It doesn't exist here anymore. And that was right up from the top. These are places that are supposed to be supposedly be managed by the government. They were the ones who were being complacent. And this complacency trickles down from the top down. So if you were sort of lax in your practices when things were being lax, how can you blame other people for being the same way? And mind you, the security guards or whoever else got it, they got it in the workplace. And then we ease restrictions for five family members, 20 family members. And then, and then they, you know, and then that's how the community transmission spread. So instead of trying to support each other all the way from the top down, 
we're having we're doing the blame game and that that's not the way to go we're all supposed to be on the same level and we we should lock down everybody at the same time and look into some of these other things but i think there's a lot of things that they're hiding um and especially the non-unionized construction sites so another thing that i've been seeing is construction i live in a cul-de-sac and you know because i drive around a lot of the times it's really surprised me to see the amount of things that have gone up i've seen like a new a whole new petrol station being built it's working and it's operational now my whole state is truck is full of people who are maybe coming in sometimes i've heard a truck at 5 a.m when it shouldn't be there so some of like the construction sites and construction workers as well I, the non-unionized ones, what's been happening there? Has anyone been looking into it? And because this is a pandemic time, I think that there's lots of dodgy things that have been happening. And it's like, here's a sex scandal to distract the masses, but there's a lot more stuff that we're not talking about. And and and, and that's a really sad thing. And, and I hate what's been going on with the nursing profession, marching us. And a lot of nurses that I work with are younger than myself. 20 to 25 year olds who's been talking about the pubs going back on. They just want their lives to just go back to normal. I remember once finishing a shift with like a mental health nurse. I mean, mind you, she was a very beautiful woman with high heels. And she was just talking about how she loved that everything was in lockdown because she could shop in the middle of the city as though it was she was on her own private shopping spree. A lot of these frontline workers whom you're martyring are people too, are just 20 year olds who thought that they'd have a life, you know, and I've been seeing people do the wrong things from the top up to the bottom down, and there's no rhyme or reason. We just have to understand where people are coming from and look at the special pass, the special badge that says, I'm a frontline worker. What are you doing with that special pass and that special badge? And are you doing the right thing with it? And there are no martyrs in all of this. This is a group project, and we're all trying to get by. Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, thanks for that, Hope. I think you've, um, in this sort of interview, I think you've managed to cover all sorts of different kind of themes, um, all kind of drawing on your experiences of, of being um, a healthcare worker. Um, I guess I just wanted to ask, do you have any kind of, I think it's probably about time to conclude, do you have any like final comments you'd like to make? You know, one of the comments as well is that like, I feel like people can focus on more than one thing at a time. And I think that the key leaders in, in, in a public health response are people who can see the bigger picture, can see the whole project, right? And I think one of the things that, you know, the final comment as well is just to say that I'm really proud of people, um, the community who's gone in to support the people in the high rises. You know, one of the things we're trying to make them do is take their vitamin D and their vitamin C because it's been shown that people who are vitamin D deficient have um, poorer outcomes if they're COVID positive. So this is one of the things that we're trying to get. And we know that it's people who are usually darker skinned from migrant backgrounds who don't get enough sun um, that are mostly vitamin D deficient. So I would like to give a round of applause to people who are um, thinking about the bigger picture, the effect on the VCE students who are currently in lockdown. There's so many parts of this pandemic um, that aren't being talked about that we really need to be talking about, you know, like get the conversation going on reusable masks and what to filter them with, you know, you need to put a filter in that, like, you know, the little video that that, you know, the chief medical officer when he was struggling with it around his ears, like, you know, that doesn't help anyone. There's been so many community things that I've seen go around. Um, and I just want to say, you know, reach out to your community. There are lots of mutual aid groups because what we need right now is mutual aid for us to be thinking about each other as a big collective. 
And I also want to say to people, you know, be checking in on your asthma plans, you know. Um, the positive thing is that we're not like the Northern Hemisphere in that everybody is missing their summer. It's winter and everyone wants to stay at home naturally. But also springtime is coming. A lot of us have respiratory conditions and respiratory issues. I've got asthma myself. Now is the time, if you've had uncontrolled asthma, to start looking into it, to start knowing that you've got enough antihistamines to know if something is because of an allergy or if it's because of COVID, you know. Know the differences and don't be afraid to look in on this knowledge, you know. There are a lot of people or a lot of countries who are going through the COVID stuff that have lots of articles that, that, that shed a light on things, you know. Don't wait for the government because they're holding on to their own information and doing things as the last, last possible resort. I mean, the mask mandate could have come a lot earlier, and I think it should be made compulsory. This is the first time I asked my workplace, my casual workplace, about a mask when COVID first started. Um, and it's only this week where they've said, you can come to our offices and get some. When I first called them, they didn't have any for me. And they were like, that's not our job to do that for you. So who's also policing some of these private companies who are letting me go out to old ladies, to quarantine hotels, to all of these places, you know? And, and also the hospitals that weren't supporting student nurses, you know? There were a lot of student nurses that had to, you know, let go of their placements because we were either unpaid or uni couldn't give us a guarantee of how they would protect us during COVID time. So you, students have, in Victoria at least, have had to go through the physical and emotional labor of doing this unpaid placement, but also like the labor of, of all of this, uh, of academic labor. So some universities have said, hand anything in and we'll just give you a pass. It's a no fail sort of thing, which was nice. But some universities like mine haven't done that. So also have a thinking to people who have to be in multiple professions, not by their choice, but because they've got no other choice, you know. So, yeah, just think about the wider things in your community and what some other people may be going through and, and listen to them and prioritise their voices. And, and that's it. Uh, hi, hi. Thank you very much, um, Hope. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Hope, for sharing your experiences. We know it's been a hectic time for you working on the front line during the pandemic. Um, you know, and this virus, as you said, has exposed so much racism and exploitation um, in these migrant communities and people of colour who are working on the front line. So, you know, we know there needs to be a much safer and fairer public health approach. So thanks for joining us. Thank you both for having me. Thank you. Community radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Green Left Radio. You're just listening to an interview with Hope, um, a frontline healthcare worker, presenter, at FreeCR, talking about the different, all the different sort of facets of COVID-19, um, her own criticisms of the Victorian government's response, what alternatives should be put forward, and how that, and how some of the decisions and the actions of a public health system coincide with um, connect and with racism. The next thing we'll be playing is a recording of an interview between Federica Fontes and Alex Bainbridge. 
Um, Fred, Fred is going to be talking about Venezuela and COVID-19 and what made Venezuela's response to the COVID-19 pandemic so special compared to how other countries have fared. Um, hope you enjoy. <laughs> so we're here with um, Federico Fuentes from the Australia-Venezuela Solidarity Network and also with uh, Green Left. And we want to focus on uh, COVID-19 in Venezuela and also, I guess, a bit more broadly in Latin America as well. And now, Venezuela has done remarkably well compared to other Latin American countries, and I mean, obviously, especially compared to the United States, in dealing with COVID-19. But this is all under the fact that it's under a sanctions regime as well. So that actually makes it doubly remarkable. Can you just start off, uh, Fred, by just laying out what is the situation for people who aren't familiar with it? How has Venezuela gone in dealing with COVID-19? Yeah, I think uh, part of the importance or way to understand how Venezuela has gone about uh, combating COVID-19 is important to consider two contexts. Uh, the first is one that you mentioned, which is the very large and devastating impacts that the economic sanctions, mainly imposed by the United States, but also a number of other European countries, uh, has had in general on the Venezuelan economy, um, but also specifically on the health system. Uh, so much so where it can essentially be said that in large parts, the uh, hospital system, public hospital system in Venezuela has largely collapsed um, over the last few years. So, of course, in a context of what COVID-19 pandemic has meant in other countries, this meant it was almost you know, it was vital um, that the government was to move quickly uh, to try to suppress it and stamp it out before it got under control. The second important aspect, though, to remember as well is that Whilst on the one hand, the public hospital system uh, has largely collapsed, uh, at the local level, um, the, the networks that have been built uh, involving uh, local doctors, in many cases, uh, Cuban doctors, together with uh, health committees, uh, local community activists, communal councils, has played an important role in sort of uh, creating a strong culture of preventative medicine, of community health, um, and, and general uh, health awareness uh, amongst the, the, the population in Venezuela. So this was really the strong point that the government had uh, in its pocket to be able to deal with, with COVID-19. So how did it respond? As, almost as soon as word came out of the pandemic um, or the outbreak of COVID-19 uh, in China, the Venezuelan government very quickly uh, engaged the Chinese government to work out what was happening and how it could begin to, to combat uh, COVID-19. Uh, once it was to hit Venezuela or to try to stop it hitting Venezuela. Uh, we Very quickly, within a few months, uh, it began to stop uh, international travel or certainly quarantine those that were coming in uh, to the country. And also, once the first few cases uh, emerged in Venezuela, very quickly moved from a regional uh, lockdown of a couple of uh, states through to an entire national uh, lockdown or quarantine, as, as they call it. Uh, where essentially uh, everyone was to uh, stay home except for the absolute most basic needs, uh, shopping for food, uh, healthcare, um, whilst using an online platform that the government set up uh, to let the government uh, and local health officials know if they had any symptoms so that doctors and community activists could go to their home to test them uh, to see uh, who was um, testing positive for COVID and where those cases were found to be uh, positive with COVID, uh, being able to find them uh, a suitable venue uh, for them to receive treatment uh, if that was possible at home 
um, then that happened at home. But if cramped living conditions meant that that was not possible, then they were moved uh, into into uh, specially designed venues uh, or, or local health um, uh, local health centres uh, in order to be uh, treated there. Essentially, what what was what was of the what is of the health system was dedicated fully uh, to to dealing with with COVID. Now had a really remarkable success, and even to date. Uh, Venezuela has, as you said, pretty much been leading uh, the region uh, in terms of uh, low level of cases and, and deaths. Um, what we are, though, seeing is that added to those uh, to that problem of the economic sanctions that, that was mentioned before, Venezuela is now encountering another big problem uh, in trying to deal with COVID, and that is the return of many Venezuelans. As, as is quite well known, there's been a large emigration of Venezuelans uh, over the last few years due to the economic and political situation. Many of those um, migrants, um, as with the case of many migrants around the world, have found themselves with little to no protections uh, in the countries where they've uh, gone to reside. And in that context, many have chosen to go home. So we've essentially seen something like 70,000 Venezuelans return back to the country over the last two, three months almost most large, the last bulk of them crossing from the Colombian border. So that's essentially Venezuelans returning from Ecuador, Peru, Colombia. Now, government's tried as best as possible to provide for quarantine measures um, in order to uh, allow everyone, of course, to return home, but in a, in a safe manner uh, where everyone is tested and, and where everyone is, is ensured that there's not a, a spread uh, of the virus. Uh, but what we've seen is that just in the last few weeks, uh, following a, a relaxation of that nationwide quarantine, uh, the government has had to go on, has had to go back into a hard quarantine, hard lockdown uh, in particularly the border states and in Caracas, given the, the large um, poor neighbourhoods that, that exist there. Uh, and this has been, as, as I said, in large part uh, due to due to the having to deal with this. Um, return of, of Venezuelan residents or who in many cases wanting to uh, escape quarantine, uh, been crossing the, the very porous Venezuelan uh, Colombian border through uh, many different means. So there's a big challenge, but as I've said, importantly, the government has faced with a, a, a health system or particularly a hospital system would never have been able to deal with this situation, uh, been forced or chosen to, to rely on the mobilization of of local health committees, of, of local doctors, uh, to really tackle tackle this issue. In the sort of topsy turvy black is white world of the Western media, uh, Venezuela is presented as being a dictatorship, and Maduro is a dictator. Um, and we've got also this, you know, supposed uh, self declared uh, presidential alternative, Juan Guaido. Um, nearby, we have Bolivia, where there's been a coup taken place, but in the eyes of the Western media, at least at the time when it was happening, that was presented as a as a as a uh, step towards you know democracy. Well, can you can you explain how the the different responses have been in in Venezuela compared to Bolivia, and, and in particular with reference to this um to this question of democracy? Certainly, uh, but just just before I get to that point, though, I, because you mentioned uh, Juan Guaido and uh, as the supposed interim president, I think that's another factor to include in just how difficult the situation has been for Venezuela to deal with. Uh, because very early on, for example, um, the Venezuelan government applied to the International Monetary Fund uh, in order to receive a loan for emergency health work uh, to be able to combat uh, COVID-19. But precisely because the IMF uh, has 
if I want to be generous, remain neutral uh, on who is the actual president in Venezuela, whilst in practice really recognising Juan Guaido as the president said that he was unable to facilitate those loans. The same thing has happened with the European Union. The same thing has happened with attempts by Venezuela to get access to its gold in the Bank of England. Uh, all of these have been attempts to try to use or access funds uh, to, be able to, cover, uh, to be able to combat COVID-19, but has consistently been undermined by this uh, spurious uh, interim presidency of, of Juan Guaido that has received the backing of, of just a handful of, of Western nations, while the majority of the uh, countries in the world continue to recognise President Maduro um, as the legitimate president of Venezuela. Of course, the, you know, when we contrast this with, with Bolivia, we also there have an interim president um, in, in, the, in, in the form of uh, Janine Añez. Um, however, this, this is an interim president who actually is the de facto head of state because she was able to come to power on the back of a coup that uh, removed uh, former President uh, Evo Morales uh, following uh, elections uh, late last year. Uh, Janine Añez was installed uh, as the president after Morales was forced to resign uh, because of this coup and was only meant to preside over an interim presidency that was meant to see elections occur on May 1. Instead, what we've seen is that Janine Añez uh, still remains in power, uh, has been as much as possible attempting to avoid elections using the, the pandemic as an excuse to uh, suppress democracy and has been exposed to have been completely inept, uh, completely failed in the attempt to actually deal with the pandemic uh, in Bolivia, where you now have a situation to where morgues are unable to deal with the amount of deaths that are occurring. So dead bodies are left to be basically out on the streets. Um, families have no place to be able to bury uh, their dead uh, you know, seen, seen horrific scenes. What we've seen is that the Bolivian government's response, far from being a health first response, was ultimately or primarily framed as a maintenance of power response. So what did this involve? It involved a number of things. Firstly, involved maintaining and escalating the repression that had already been carrying out against dissidents, in particular members of the movements towards socialism, the party that Evo Morales uh, heads, and is the main contender in the upcoming presidential elections that have now finally been rescheduled for September 1, although we'll see if they actually go ahead on those days. So whilst the repression was already underway, under the guise of the pandemic, uh, the government has been using so-called uh, health threats um, to uh, imprison, detain, uh, to persecute um, members of the movement towards socialism. We've also seen alongside uh, this, this repression, uh, a, a, a sense, a, a, an attempt by the government to politicise the pandemic. We've even had scandalous cases where hospitals that were uh, projects that have been started under the Evo Morales government and which were due to be opened, having their opening delayed so that the new interim government could paint the hospitals green, which is the colour of the party that Agnes uh, will be running for, in order to then be able to present these as somehow projects that her new interim government had brought about as part of the electioneering that's going on. So again, a prioritisation of the maintenance of power rather than the, the real basic health needs. Another important differentiation between the way the Venezuelan government has handled this, the, the pandemic and the Bolivian government is that while both have imposed uh, national lockdowns of, at different degrees and at different times, Venezuelan government has always made as big attempt uh, to at least try to alleviate the worst aspects of those national lockdowns, uh, essentially um, covering wages of workers in public and private sector, 
reducing, if not completely eliminating rents, uh, payment of bills, uh, these kind of hardships that, of course, you're unable to pay for if, if you're unable to, to go to work. Um, whereas in Bolivia, very little was offered. At first, nothing was offered. Only when initial protests uh, against the quarantine began did the government essentially um, uh, bump up a bit of the existing social payments that were already being handed out as a result of the Evo Morales government and, and a couple of one-off payments that, that were given out. And then finally decided that rather than try to um, bear any more economic cost, would simply start to uh, lift, the, lift the quarantine and allow people to go to work. And what we've seen as a result is just a, an escalation of, of, of the cases and, and deaths in Bolivia, a crisis that's already seen one health minister resign. It's already seen the government involved in a corruption scandal for overbilling of ventilators in, into the country. So it's just been scandal after scandal, uh, which itself has then been reflected in Giannis is uh, declining the polls where many had seen her as the potential unity candidate uh, to challenge against the movement towards socialism, uh, whereas now the polls show her as a as a distance third. Uh, so it's in that case, it's unsurprising that her, she's been seeking to delay the elections to try to see if she can regain some political capital before uh, Bolivians go to the polls uh, in a situation where uh, current polls are indicating that uh, were elections to be held today, the movement towards socialism would not only win, come first in the elections, but would be an outright winner and avoid a second round, given the lead that they've now got against the, the second uh, favourite candidate. It's um you, uh, you you spoke about the whole Tuku attempt and Juan Guaido supposed self-declared presidency. Uh, it's quite striking to me that the United States in foreign policy in the time of this global pandemic. Uh, has also not been putting health first. Um, so you've seen the tightening of the screws against Iran and also tightening of the screws against Venezuela as well. Can you speak about some of those aspects of what the United States has been doing um, to, uh, to uh, you know, tighten the screws against Maduro's Venezuela? Yeah, I think the... Just sorry a sec, there's a plane coming over. Okay, all right, that's fine. We'll wait, wait a moment. I can't hear the plane anymore. It's gone for me. Okay. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I think just as the Maduro government realised that it, it had a huge challenge on its hand, not, not just because COVID-19 is a huge challenge for any government, but because of the, the precarious economic and, and situation, the situation of the health system, the, the US administration also saw this as, as very much an, an opportunity um, that if it could, it could very much tighten the screws, it could... Uh, hope to achieve what its supposed aim or its, its real aim of the sanctions uh, not, uh, is, which is basically to, to strangle the economy with the hope of creating some kind of internal uprising uh, or some kind of internal fracture within the government um, to, to bring down uh, Maduro. So we've seen a number of tightening of sanctions. We've seen the attempts to block um, the, the entrance of uh, Iranian tankers carrying petrol. Uh, one of the latest shortages to really start hitting hard in, in Venezuela is petrol, something that that seems illogical given the huge oil reserves that Venezuela has, but essentially large part because of the effects of these sanctions and the debilitation of the state oil company Pedavesa. Uh, Venezuela is no, not really in a position now to be able to refine its oil into petrol. And so it's faced extreme shortages uh, in, 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 in this commodity. So really the US government has thought well, now we could tie to if we tighten sanctions now, this could really be the time where, where things to begin to erupt. And it must be noted that there have been 
you know, uh, whilst small scale, not completely insignificant um, protests, rights, uh, cases of looting, by and large in smaller, medium sized towns, perhaps those towns that have been the hardest for uh, government efforts to get to, uh, to resolve the issues, or others might say perhaps the ones that have been least prioritised while the government has given, you know, focused on the bigger cities, uh, in part for electoral political reasons, in part because if the COVID was to spread in those areas, it would have, you know, the largest and most devastating impact. Um, so, but, but at the same time, the government's ability, the Venezuelan government's ability to respond to COVID, uh, and how it has responded to it has almost overwhelmingly be seen as a positive, even including by detractors of the government. Very few are willing to say that the government has mishandled uh, the situation. Some may claim that the figures are a bit rubbery, they're not completely accurate, but when when people look around to, uh, you know, on Brazil to the right of Venezuela, uh, to Peru and Ecuador and Chile, on, on, on geographically to the left or politically to the right of Venezuela and see the disasters that are happening there. Um, it's very hard to fault the way that the, the Venezuelan government uh, has, has dealt, dealt with this pandemic. And it's really put the US in a bind because it's sort of, you know, you know, we've, and we've seen it with some of the, the statements that have been coming out of the US administration, either uh, publicly or sort of through back channels that there's sort of a real sense that perhaps the whole adventure with, with Juan Guaido, uh, including the latest episode uh, being uh, just a couple of weeks ago with the attempted invasion by US, uh, Colombian and Venezuelan mercenaries, uh, spectacularly failing, that many are sort of seeing that there's really little left uh, in, in this uh, project of, of, of the Juan Guaido interim presidency. And what's more, it now faces the, the challenge of, of how to deal with uh, National Assembly elections that have been scheduled for uh, this for this, uh, later this year in in Venezuela, given that the, the National Assembly has really been the kind of the body uh, that the opposition have used to portray as the last remaining uh, democratic institution, and have used to give some kind of uh, pretext or some kind of cover for the Juan Guaido presidency. Just briefly speaking about these sanctions, I mean, look, probably unless Australians are following Venezuela closely, they might not even know about the sanction regime. But just to clarify, these are illegal sanctions under international law, aren't they? Yeah, the, the, the sanctions are essentially defined as a as collective punishment and therefore seen as illegal by the, the United Nations. We have a, a range of sanctions and, and generally the, the focus that's given to the sanctions by the US government and by supporters of the sanctions is this idea that they are just uh, individual sanctions targeting individual officials in the regime to uh, supposedly uh, stop them from being able to get access to 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 their corrupt uh, earnings. The reality is, though, that the sanctions are much, much deeper and broader than that. And even if we just look at some of the individual sanctions, these are specifically targeted individual sanctions against key ministers in the government, which essentially stop those ministries being able to carry out any kind of trade agreements uh, with, with other countries. So already there, they have a much broader impact than just supposedly freezing bank accounts of, of individuals. But they also extend to companies doing dealings with, with Venezuela. They extend to, the in, in the case of uh, CITGO, the, the US uh, subsidiary of the state oil company PDVSA, the, essentially the, the, the theft of, of that uh, affiliate, PDVSA affiliate, and handing it over to, to Juan Guaido. Um, 
and Citgo has been an important part of the, the funds and the, the, the trade that Venezuela's had in terms of oil with, with the United States. All, all of these different sanctions really amount to, as I said, a, a collective punishment with, with the aim, even though they won't explicitly say this, um, but it's always really been what's driven a lot of these sanctions regimes, this, this conception that by strangling the economy and making the situation as unbearable as possible, um, the hope will be that people will turn against the government. Firstly, not only has history in general shown that that does not happen, uh, if anything, it only tends to solidify support uh, uh, with the state under siege. Uh, more importantly, in the case of Venezuela, an important section of the population continues to identify uh, with that government politically and sees that even despite these sanctions, uh, that government is, is working in its interest to try to, in this case, very specifically, as we've been talking about, uh, deal with the, the COVID-19 pandemic in, in the best possible way to save as many lives as possible. Whenever we're in general campaigning for socialism, one of the common retorts you'll get is, oh, socialism, you don't want to end up like Venezuela. And I think if we look at the international response to this uh, pandemic, it's obviously not all one way, and clearly a virus doesn't care about political ideology. But some of the countries that have had the best responses, like uh, Venezuela, but also Vietnam and Cuba, are clearly sort of left-wing governments. And some of the governments that have had the worst response, like, I mean, obviously, I mean, Brazil, I think, would be up there, but even the United States is is right-wing and not, uh, you know, under Trump, it's almost like right-wing, not in just the sort of traditional mainstream right, but it's, uh, you know, uh, perhaps a bit further right than that. And some of the other right-wing governments in the world have also handled this crisis very badly. Are there ways in which a, which a left-wing approach uh, can help to solve practical problems like this? I think there, there's, there's very concrete evidence um, that where governments have taken a, a progressive left-wing approach to healthcare, um, whether that be from heavily funding a healthcare system so that it has an adequate healthcare system uh, that can, for instance, in the case of Cuba, uh, not just deal with combating COVID-19 at home, but actually is in a position to send doctors overseas to help other countries uh, com- combat the pandemic. Uh, whether it be because of progressive policies that understand that uh, whilst certain measures may be needed uh, to tackle the pandemic, such as home quarantine or state or regional or national lockdowns um, may be required, uh, that those measures must be accompanied uh, with measures that look after people's livelihoods uh, if they are to in any way be successful. Um, otherwise, they are bound to fail. And we've seen that in numerous countries, as I mentioned before, uh, Bolivia just being one example of where the, the, the lockdown just had, you know, was un, unsustainable. And so therefore, rather than try to deal with that unsustainability, the government instead preferred to just begin to slowly lift it. And we've seen that the deaths are occurring there. There's a lot of examples of how these kind of policies have been far better equipped uh, to deal with, with the pandemic. Uh, and we've even seen it in the case of where uh, you know, even even in many in a number of cases, right wing governments basically having lost complete control of the pandemic have been forced to implement policies that you know only weeks before they were decrying as, as so called socialist communist policies. I think perhaps in, in some ways it's no clearer example of you know the in, in Britain where the the Boris Johnson government having completely failed uh, in the first uh, first few weeks of the pandemic essentially moved to implement a whole raft of economic policies that 
it were just as, if not probably bigger in terms of their size than what Jeremy Corbyn had been offering in the last elections and which the media had decried as, as left-wing lunacy. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the circumstances themselves have in some cases forced governments to you know, go against their own um, uh, political uh, so-called ideologies or principles in order to, to implement other policies. Uh, so I think that there is a very strong lesson to, to be learnt there. Of course, it doesn't resolve everything. Um, as you've mentioned, it is true. Uh, you know, I, I don't think uh, many people would want to live in the current situation that Venezuela is in at the moment, uh, putting aside the way they've dealt with the pandemic. Um, the economic situation there is extremely dire, but it's, of course, extremely dire for a whole range of reasons. Uh, the critics like to just focus on, oh, it's all to blame with socialism, but ignore the, the history of colonialism, ignore the fact that Venezuela's economy has been completely dependent on oil well before Chavez and Maduro were in power, that the country they inherited had extremely high levels of poverty, uh, was an issue that only the Chavez government began to deal with. Uh, it's had to deal with economic sanctions. It's had to deal with uh, hostile uh, uh, um, opposition internally within the country uh, that has led to sabotage of the oil industry. That's a regular attempted coups. Uh, any country would be hard-pressed to still be, any government was to be hard-pressed to still be in power, let alone uh, to be able to uh, radically transform in uh, society. But I think... What we see is that what is so powerful about these these ideas is, you know, the fact that they they do pros an alternative. They do show that something different uh, can be done uh, on a on a on a certain level. That's being seen with this this pandemic. Although, of course, very very few of the media are willing to pay any much attention to what's happening in whether it be Venezuela or Cuba or Vietnam or state of Kerala in, in India or many other places uh, where progressive or left-wing forces are in power. Uh, the counter, I think, is certainly that if if the deaths in Venezuela were anywhere near on a per capita basis, what we've seen in countries like Brazil or Peru or Ecuador, you could absolutely be certain that it would be, you know, up at the top of the international news sections with renewed calls to have to get rid of the Maduro government in order to deal with the, the health impacts that, that is occurring. Uh, a call that you see in none of these other countries where you have, particularly in Brazil, you know, essentially a, a government that's explicitly stated it has no problem, or certainly at least a president, that it has no problems with this, with the spread of this, this deadly pandemic um, occurring in, in his own country. So, I think there is a lot of, lot of validity to that. It's important to be able to get some of this in, information um, out about how these responses are occurring because they also can be useful for drawing some kind of lessons to how in our own countries, in our own struggles, that we can begin to also uh, put forward concrete proposals that are not only just uh, good ideas but that can actually uh, chime in uh, or that can actually sort of come together with uh, people's uh, People's struggles, people's campaigns, uh, for trying to deal with the, the, the hardships, the, the both health, social and economic hardships that they're facing as a result of this pandemic. Thanks everyone for joining us today. Thanks Fred for, uh, for those insights. I would like to make one, one final plug again. Please become a Green Left Weekly supporter. It makes a big difference to our project. Again, if you haven't shared this video, please share the video and give it a thumbs up. See you next time. You're just listening to Green Left Radio. And we just heard an interview um, um, from with
Federica Fontes, conducted by Alex Bainbridge, um, about Venezuela's success story in terms of how it's handled um, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, despite obviously um, its limitations, especially being from a global South country, um, not having the developed sort of healthcare or infrastructure or even having the money. Um, in fact, it's also besieged by um, the United States, um, how it's managed to sort of achieve, you know, quite a relative kind of success in terms of handling the COVID-19 pandemic is, you know, something that um, to behold. Now, um, I guess I'll just play a quick announcement and then we'll move on to a quick um, activist calendar. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Green Left Weekly relies on the financial support of listeners like you. Become a supporter for as little as $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Now, um, before we go to the last part of our program, um, I'm going to be announcing what's coming up from the activist calendar. So, happening on... Starting on Saturday, July the 18th, there's going to be an online summit, Stop Adani. From 10am to 3pm, join us at the Stop Adani Summit to build a plan to finally stop its mine and win bigger shifts to move Australia and the world beyond coal. Online rally, seven years too long, free the refugees, happening on Sunday the 19th of July at 2pm. It it's time to end the crime of indefinite tension, free the refugees, bring the refugees from PNG and Nauru here. Then there is an online national campaign launch, Living Incomes for Everyone, live next Thursday, July the 21st, 7.30... Oh, no, next Tuesday, um, 7.30pm. There'll be a webinar, Asbestos Ban Update, Campaigning in a Global Crisis, happening on Thursday, July the 21st, 3pm. And then on Saturday, the 25th of July, for the Sue Bolton-Morland team campaign meeting. Sue Bolton was elected as a representative for the North East Ward in 2012 as the first socialist to be elected on a seat on Moreland Council. She was re-elected in 2016. For the October 2020 election, Sue heads a team of like-minded socialist alliance and community independents who want to make Moreland a progressive council, putting the needs of the community ahead of the greed of developers. Come along to this campaign meeting to find out how you can get involved. To you. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, on the For our next part of the program... Um, we're going to be playing a recording of a talk from um, the public forum COVID-19 Response, Healthcare and Justice, Not Racism, um, that was organised by Socialist Alliance Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton and Socialist Alliance Melbourne. And um, it's, going to, it's a recording of a speech um, by Walid, um, who is a United Workers Union member and was the security guard who blew the whistle on the quarantine hotels um, and the mishandling of it by the Victorian government. Uh, 
Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. My name is Walid, and uh, I'm working in security industry over the past three years. Firstly, I'm very thankful to this forum for giving me this opportunity to speak on this issue, that uh, how these subcontractors are creating exploitation in this industry. just want to make it clarify uh, before I further go on that uh, uh, whatever happened in quarantine hotels is just uh, because of the uh, uh, not taking proper precautions uh, by the subcontractors and uh, how how they just... Uh, they just made money out of it and uh, didn't even uh, train their guard properly. So I'm going to explain that how these subcontractors are growing rapidly and what is the formula which they're using to increase their business. Their only targets are migrants, especially international students. Uh, I will briefly tell my own story that how I ended up working with these subcontractors. Uh, I did my security course, which cost me uh, almost $1,700. And, um, uh, as soon as I got my license, I started applying in all these companies, but I had no luck. And uh, with the reference of my friend, I ended up uh, working with these subcontractors. They know the drill. They know that there's no direct company is going to hire international students. And that is how their business starts. And uh, they, they, almost all of them, they speak the same first language. And that is how they take advantage out of us emotionally, saying things like, uh, we are here to help you. Uh, we'll give you long hours shift and all they pay you is 18 to $20 an hour or even less than that. And it is all flat rate. There's no long service leave, no superannuation, no, uh, sick leave, no weekend or public holiday race in it. All flat rate. Uh, they treat migrants so bad. They blackmail them. They bully them. They force them to work. I still have a message of one of the contractor asking me to do the shift next day. And uh, because I had a family commitment, and I, I said, sorry, I'm not available tomorrow because of the family commitments. Uh, and I got a response back from him saying, uh, you must do it or we have to hire some new guards. So they, they are ruthless. They, they're just money-making organizations. They don't care about health and safety or anything. Uh, sometime, let's say if international students, they're not available to work and they uh, say uh, apology is not available this week. And uh, what they say they blackmail them. They'll be like, uh, we'll uh, report it to immigration saying that you're exceeding your weekly hours of limit. And uh, th- that is, on the, on the other hand, what I have found, the direct companies, they're not, uh, they don't want to take that responsibility. They found it hard to handle uh, international students because of their limited hours of work. And it, it left no choice for international students except for working with these subcontractors. Uh, I would say there's a lack of awareness as well. Uh, we migrants were not aware of our proper entitlements, our working rights and everything. Uh, for example, if it's me, uh, I was not aware of my proper entitlements. I mean, I knew that these subcontact, they're stealing money from me, but how much? I was totally unaware of that until I joined United Workers Juniors and met people like Kazim and uh, Nick. Uh, I personally think that union it is very important in every industry. It helps the people to speak about their rights and what is going on at their workplace. They, they just, they just give you that opportunity and uh, I'm very thankful to them. Uh, and sadly it is, it is not just that security industry just happening in every industry. All they pay you is 13 to $20 an hour and which is a complete flat rate. 
and uh, especially from migrants, they just take a lot of work from them, and then uh, at the end of the day, they just pay them nothing. They treat them so bad. Uh, what I have seen in the past few years that there has been no proper checks on all these industries. Uh, there's no accountability. Uh, I have seen few in- investigations going on, but uh, all of a sudden it's all disappeared. Uh, I think what we need at the moment is to give a proper training to uh, all the migrants. Uh, what are their proper entitlements? Well, we're just letting to- you know that it's at four minutes, so I'll just give you one more minute. Yep. Because you're yep. sharing the time slot. Thank you. No worries. Uh, encourage them to join union uh, and so they can speak about what's happening at their workplace. Also, I want to include one more point that as per the growing numbers of issues and increasing day-to-day expenses, if government can increase the student hours limit up to 30 hours a week, right now it's 20. So they they can work having the proper entitlements and not be dodged by the subcontractors or the employers. I think there would be no harm increasing these hours of limit if it stops exploitation, and it is worth it. Uh, and I also think that it is an ongoing issue since more than a decade now, and there's nothing comes up, and it is the right time to fight for it. Thank you. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, that was Walid, a uh, member of the United Workers' Union, um, speaking at a public forum titled COVID-19 Response, Healthcare and Justice, Not Racism. All right, um, that concludes us um, for the rest of the program. Um, I, will prob- um, I, thank, I would like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week and um, hope to see you uh, the following week um, for our program. Enjoy and keep the struggle going. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call one 634 Arise you workers from the slumbers Arise you prisoners of want For reason in revolt now thunders And at last since the age of Kant Away with all your superstitions Serve all masses Arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that crap